This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And now, Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Thanks so much for joining our conversation today. We have all kinds of great things lined up for you. We are kicking off our fall series. We have a guest. And we are celebrating because Persuasion is actually having a birthday. We've reached a major milestone because this is our 200th episode. Hannah, can you believe it? We've been talking 200 times on air. I think we look pretty good for 200. (laughs) Yes. To be honest. I think so, too. Now, when we started this in 2015... I would have never guessed all the things that we would have talked about, and I would have never guessed that this year would look the way that it looked. Like, who knew we were going to get to these sorts of conversations in our lifetime? Who knew we would still be doing this? Like, I'm the type of person that has a lot of good ideas, and I start doing them, and, you know, finishing them is the hard thing. So I'm really, really proud of us in a very humble way of course <laughs> it has um, been great and i i feel the same way that we've we've put time and effort into this and we've nurtured this baby and here we are so i thanks all you listeners out there for listening to us 200 episodes in um as we started this you know our desire was to spark these conversations and critical thinking and we need that now more than ever and that really leads us into what we're going to be doing for our fall series. This is so fun. Um, you know, the there's something big on the horizon. We have the upcoming presidential election. Uh, politics is just going to be a tough topic to avoid. And it's possible that a lot of our listeners are already tired of it. I, I would agree. I'm tired of it. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing about having 200 episodes and being at this moment in history as a nation, as a culture, facing the next few months together. I feel like I've done 200 episodes of Persuasion. We should not have to be having these conversations anymore. <laughs> like, I'm like, did you not all listen to the last 199 episodes about thoughtful conversation, engaging people with differences, being reflective, self-aware. And not only that, like about two years ago, um, I tried to write this book, All That's Good, that was a call, an appeal to seek for goodness and to exercise wisdom and discernment. And quite frankly, Erin, I think I've made my contribution and I should not have to participate in the next three months. I think that's true. You sound a little perturbed there and I love it. <laughs> this is hilarious. Well, it, this is the thing. We've talked about this whole idea of like throughout the course of our whole persuasion history, we've talked about how do we have better conversations? How do we think critically? How do we think um, 
more in line with life and light and flourishing and who Jesus is. We've talked about all that, and yet so often we still need more refining and more understanding, and we need more conversation. So we're going to stick with it. Well, I hope you're going to stick with it with me, Hannah. You aren't going to leave me, are you? Well, that's the thing. (laughs) I have to be honest. The thing that's most frustrating to me is not necessarily everyone else's conversation, but the ways that I still tend to enter the conversation even after all of this, right. even after all of this study, even after all of the work I've tried to do personally in terms of self-awareness and my own thought process, I still find myself having that a gut reaction to conversations, mm-hmm. that initial, what in the world? How could you even be thinking that? Like, that's my first response to a lot of things. And the number of replies I've had to delete and pause and not post. And so I think the work that we have wanted to engage in and have tried to engage in over the last uh, five years or so has been fantastic good work, but that doesn't mean that it comes naturally. Oh, so true. Like we've been shaped by so many forces in our conversational lives and rhetorical structures that we just assume them. And if we're not careful against our best intentions, we'll fall right back into them. What I'm hearing so much of in terms of our our current season, and especially looking ahead to election season, what I'm hearing so much is that these conversations are, they're hard, and because they're hard, they create a bit of anxiety and internal turmoil. And I, I've seen a couple of different ways that people are responding when it comes to faith and politics and, and what do we do with the decisions we have before us. So... One option is for us to just completely check out of these conversations. We can just say, okay, these are too hard. It's too much. I'm done. You could do that. You could lean in to whatever learned positions and and ideas that you have. Um, you could then switch sides, knee-jerk reaction, and and still have that same intensity. Or there's another way. You could learn a better way. And What we're going to do here in this series is hopefully give you some tools and some ideas on how there could be a better way to approach these conversations. Right. Because we are either courageous or stupid, yet to be determined, (laughs) we are engaging (laughs) in our fall series for God and country, and we're going to hit religion and politics head on. Now, what we're hoping for this is not to tell you what to think or which candidate to vote for, but how to think and maybe open up some new categories um, between the relationship between our spiritual formation and the way we engage in common life as a nation. These conversations are going to last over about seven episodes, but for today, as I mentioned, we have a guest. We are so thrilled to have our friend Caitlin Schess with us. Caitlin is a staff writer with us at Christ and Pop Culture. Her writing has also appeared at Christianity Today, Relevant, and Fathom Magazine. And her first book is The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, through InterVarsity Press, and that book releases September 8th. So, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us on Persuasion. Thank you. I'm so excited to hear what you guys are taking on with this project. It sounds right up my alley. We thought so, too. Well, (laughs) yes. We're not completely altruistic (laughs) in having you on. (laughs) So, Caitlin, 
this book, it's a brilliant concept, first of all. I just want to say kudos to you for that. Thank you. And really what you're tackling in it is the fact that the way we engage in politics and the way we engage in that kind of common life, that common space, Mm -hmm. um, is spiritually formative. And there's this kind of interplay both between our faith and our spiritual formation within the church and the way we relate to the political arena. And it goes both directions. Mm -hmm. Um, I realize I'm putting words to your book, but how would you describe it? Is, is that an accurate description or um, what really prompted this and what are you trying to do with this book? Yeah, I love that description. It sounds very accurate. Um, yeah, I I kind of think of the book in two movements. The first half is really, like you said, about how our political participation, which includes lots of things, not just voting, but uh, the media that we consume, the conversations we have, if we go to rallies or protests, the people we listen to, you know, podcasts and books and, and even movies and TV shows that aren't, you know, news, but still form us in certain ways, how all of that um, doesn't just form our political preferences or our positions that we hold, but it actually forms us on a deeper level. Um, I think I say in the book that those types of formative forces aren't content to stay penultimate. They want to become ultimate in our lives. And I'm getting that from James K.A. Smith, that we think we're just on this lower rung, having our political beliefs formed, but actually um, those are really powerful stories. They're not just telling us what policies to support or politicians to vote for, but really powerful stories about how the world is, how it should be, what will save us from whatever is ultimately wrong with us. And so then kind of that's the first movement. And then there's the kind of uh, problem, which is that these forces are really powerful. They can form us in dangerous ways and spiritually dangerous ways. And yet right in the middle of the book, have a chapter about why we should be politically involved, why Christians have a responsibility because of our command to love our neighbor who have material needs and have political barriers to their flourishing, why we then have to engage politically at all sorts of levels in different ways. And that depends on every person, but we should care about politics. And so if it's this dangerous thing that we should also care about, you know, what what do we do with that? And the second movement of the book is just going through historic practices of the church, spiritual disciplines, the sacraments, corporate worship, community, the way we read scripture, and saying all of those things have always been intended to form us, not just kind of our inner beliefs or our inner piety, but also to change the way that we interact in the world, including politically. Um, So I'm young and a seminary student and was not trying to write a book that said, you know, here's the fresh new answer to all of the problems that people have struggled with for much longer than I've been alive. But just to say, maybe there are some historic practices and historic ways of thinking about our faith and our political engagement that would be worth returning to instead of trying to seek some new answer. And I just want to jump in and make this observation that what you're describing about the level at which this kind of engagement shapes us, to me, also explains the kind of um, deep emotional attachment and deep emotional response that you see when beliefs or opinions collide. Because I think that's the thing that a lot of people are just... Um, stymied by is like, how can a difference of opinion about an issue or a difference of opinion about policy feel so profoundly personal and so deeply 
um, you know, it elicits such a deep reaction. And I think what you're describing, um, this framework of how we're spiritually formed by the process really gets a bit to explaining that, that there's a lot more going on than just a logical or rational approach to a question that needs to be solved. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I fear sometimes that evangelicals in particular have had this idea that everyone else kind of you know, is subject to the whims of their feelings, but we're the rational ones. I mean, I remember in youth group, that was sort of the refrain was the world will say, you know, I feel this way, or your truth is your truth. And my truth is my truth. But, but we're the ones that, that believe in absolute truth. And we will reason our way to the right answers to things. And have just been so struck myself watching friends and people in my community and my church, um, how powerful affect is and how powerful um, those forces are in our lives. And instead of kind of taking them head on and saying, what is forming us and how can the practices of the church form us in a different way? Instead, we've kind of gone, well, if we know the right information, we'll act the right way. If we know the right information, we'll vote the right way. We'll treat our ne- we'll treat our neighbors correctly, those kinds of things. And, you know, the last few years have definitely been, I think, a lesson in that that's not true, that we can know all sorts of right information and still act wrongly because of the things that we have learned to love, sometimes things that we're not even consciously aware we've learned to love. Someone might deny, for instance, the prosperity gospel. They might say, no, I don't believe that God will give you good things if you're faithful, good material things in this world, you know, health and wealth. But on some level, still believe that if you act rightly, if you have a good savings account, if you eat your veggies, if you do all the right things, you will be rewarded with health and wealth. And when you're not, that's really disconcerting. And so also having the ability, I think, to look at that lower level of what's motivating us, even if we might consciously deny it. I love this holistic approach because it doesn't push politics off to the side and make it Mm. separate from the rest of our being and the rest of our thinking. And I'm I'm curious, Caitlin, have you always been interested in politics? Is this something that has always been part of your um, approach to thinking and processing life? Or is this a newer thing that you have been diving into? Mm, yeah. So I... I went to college at Liberty University and went there with the purpose of thinking I was going to become a lawyer or be involved in politics in some level. Um, I was a debater. I was a government major and was kind of just like in that world um, from 2012 to 2016 and kind of had a sort of conversion experience. I mean, I was already a Christian, but had sort of a dramatic summer camp youth group kind of thing where I was like, okay, no, I'm going to leave behind that world of power hungry, you know, whatever. And I'm going to go to seminary instead. And kind of told that story to people that that kind of relies on what you just said, this separation of things. I was like, oh, that's a worldly pursuit. Now I'm going to go do the spiritual thing, the higher, you know, better thing of going to seminary and, and working in a church and ministering to people. And a lot of people, honestly, in my life ate that story up too. You know, I had a pastor at the time who would tell everyone, you know, she was going to go to law school, but now she's going to seminary. <laughs> you know, it was like this really, truly like a conversion story. And Within a couple semesters of being in seminary, I was writing a little bit more, sometimes about politics. And um, actually, a friend, another uh, Christ and Pop Culture staff writer, Catherine, uh, she just invited me to something that she was working on that was part of another kind of um, 
denominational association, but was an event about faith and politics. And I went into it thinking, okay, I've been around this stuff. I went to Liberty. I know what this is going to be like. And it's going to be basically just like abortion and gay marriage. And we're going to just all kind of sit around and talk about that. And this event she invited me to was holistic and moving. And they had workshops about foster care and adoption and racism in Texas. And um, I remember especially one about dealing with restrictions on payday loan places. It was this very practical thing where communities in Texas were recognizing that these payday loan places were exploitative and hurting their the most vulnerable people in their communities. And so they worked to create ordinances locally that would prevent, you know, put more regulations on those places to make them less harmful to people. And so it was this really kind of just eye-opening experience of realizing that maybe things are more holistic than I thought. And also that maybe Christians have opportunities that are broader than I realized that are less constrained by sort of our history of certain partisan kind of positions that have kind of done the same thing over and over again. And that maybe there are more local ways to be involved, more creative ways to be involved. And the last speaker um, of that conference, Dr. Vincent Baycoat, who's at Wheaton, um, just gave this really beautiful description of how Christians are meant to seek the flourishing of the world. And one of the ways that they can do that is tools that are available to them politically. And I just remember sitting there thinking, oh, I didn't know you could be a theologian and think about politics. Like those are different worlds. And having that experience of realizing, I didn't know this thing existed, but but that's what I want to do. Whatever you're doing, I'm going to read everything that you've read and the stuff you've written and and kind of dive into that world. And I don't really think I'll, I'll leave at this point. <laughs> Caitlin, I love how you're describing politics as a tool for working to the, toward the common good, working on behalf of our neighbors, because I don't think that's the way I understood politics. And even to this day, I find when I hear the word politics or political, um, my mind immediately goes to election cycles or partisanship. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of people, because that's how we have been trained to think about politics. How would you, if you were going to try to recover this word politics or the political, how would you describe it? Like, what would you say politics is? It involves election cycles and it involves political parties just by the nature of the context, but that's not what we mean necessarily when we say politics or political work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I use the book, I use the word in the book um, in a broad sense and in a narrow sense, the narrow sense being kind of what you've described as legislative processes, the, the work of statecraft, you know, the inevitable reality for Christians today of operating within the government that they live in. But then also more broadly, thinking about just our common life together. Uh, Luke Brotherton, who's a theologian that writes about this stuff a lot and is really great, he uses this phrase over and over again in one of his books, Christ in the Common Life the forming, norming, and sustaining of our common life together. And I love that phrase because the forming part might include some legislative measures, right? There's just going to be people who are leaders and laws that kind of structure our common life. But then the norming and the sustaining both have to deal with culture and smaller communities, more local measures. And it it keeps it from being focused, I think, too much, as you said, on just political parties, politicians, and partisanship. And that's, I think, another thing that we get confused a lot of the time. People will say, I don't want to get political or this issue isn't political. And really what they mean probably is 
this isn't partisan. We should be able to agree on this. Or for Christians, we should all be able to agree. It shouldn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Um, And that's a good thing to say about issues that deal with protecting vulnerable people, to say this isn't partisan. But to say that it isn't political is to kind of individualize it and to deny the structural factors involved. So when someone's talking about issues with immigrants or refugees, when they're talking about uh, human trafficking, those kinds of things, there is an individual element of, as Christians, we believe certain things as, a, as an individual about the value and dignity of the human being. And it shouldn't be partisan. You shouldn't have to be a Democrat or a Republican to agree that you know, refugees' lives matter and how can we best protect them and serve them? How can we get people out of human trafficking? Um, But to deny that those are political issues is to deny that there are political issues involved, that there are laws that could shape the way those things function, that there are leaders that could do more or less about them, and that probably depend on their constituents advocating for those issues in order to do something about them. And so I would rather us think about it really broadly Um, what political means on a national level, and then also to think about it in different levels, to think, yes, politics has something to do with the national election of the president and who is nominated from each party at the national level. But it also has a lot to do with elections and, you know, service in your community very locally. So for me, the kind of uh, goal that I've given to a lot of people in my in my community is how can I care enough and know enough about the people that are close to me locally that I'm inevitably involved politically? Because when they come with a concern about something that's happening that has a legislative or political solution, I already know about it and I care about them and I can advocate for it in the different means that are available to me without it coming prior to that of, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, these are the beliefs I have, instead of it coming more naturally as I care about my community, I know their needs, and I'm educated and I have resources and you know privilege that they might not have to advocate for legislative solutions to some of the things that are barriers to their flourishing. I love how you are diffusing the term political or politics, because I think that's really the thing that I'm, I'm hearing so much is that the the response of saying oh let's not get political or or this doesn't need to be political i feel like it's a defense mechanism of ooh this feels scary and painful and it feels like conflict so let's let's just say it's political and then we'll put it over there for some other day uh, but i do think that there are other terms and phrases that we use that actually can inhibit and hinder our conversations around politics in the way that you have framed it, because so much of what I hear and observe in our conversations politically, it's about who is going to win and who is going to lose, or this is a battle, this is a war, we must fight, we must win. Uh, and if we don't win, it's the downfall of everything. And and that that commentary is actually on both sides, which I always find comical is that we're using the same words in the same fear-based language about each other. And I'm just curious, what do you think about that language? And and is there a better way for us to talk about the things related to politics so that it doesn't fuel that sort of fear? Mm, yeah. Um, just to be a really stereotypical seminary student, I'll just talk about the Bible. Um, 
I really think we tend to either go to sort of militaristic or, or uh, culture war type of language in the Old Testament when it's Israel versus, you know, neighboring countries that are worshiping idols, or we go to the New Testament and talk about all of the really, you know, conflicting political issues at the time and Jesus coming in and, and we sort of paint him as apolitical, which I don't think is true. But I prefer to start most of the conversations that I have with people about politics in Genesis. Um, I think we should start a lot of our conversations there, but I, I think we miss some of what's happening early in Genesis in chapter one, where God gives this commission to Adam and Eve to rule and reign over creation. And we tend to take those words um, and give them a really harsh connotation of you know, sort of assuming sin's already entered the picture and saying, okay, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be evil, they're going to have to subdue it. And at that point, sin hasn't entered the picture. They're living in communion with God. They're living in the garden that hasn't had um, the ravages of sin and, and brokenness in their world. And so really that commission to them, I think, is one of of being the image of God on creation in creation to find creative ways of taking the good things God has given them in the garden and shaping them and forming them and and finding ways to rule and reign in the sense of being God's representation on earth of a good father who loves his creation, has created something good, and then has given these you know special creations, these humans, in order to do something creative with the goods he's given them. And starting it there, I think, gives us a, a better picture of before conflicts even entered the world, we have a commission to take the good things God has given us and make something constructive and creative with it. And if we can start there, I think we can look at specific political issues that are inevitably filled with conflict and brokenness because of the world we now live in, but both think about their created goodness. How can I seek the flourishing of my neighbor? How can I think more creatively and more constructively instead of being constrained by there's limited resources, someone has to win, someone has to lose, and then having that be the basis. And then to look to Revelation and to think about how if this earth is going to be redeemed, and we believe it is, and there's going to be this picture that's given to us in Revelation of the new Jerusalem, a city, a a great example of human creativity where God has ordained us to kind of create communities that have structure and norms uh, without conflict, you know, in a world that doesn't have sin. If those are the pictures at the beginning and the end of the biblical story that we ascribe to, and that's also the foundation for our political work, I think it gives us more opportunities to think of how can we multiply things? How can we create abundance? How can we seek flourishing that, like I said, isn't constrained by well, there's only so many elections. <laughs> there's only so many resources. There's only so many people who can win and lose. And I want it to be my people. Um, and another part of this that I think is important, um, I have a section in the book where I talk about the word ecclesia, the early word for the church, that was a word that already existed to describe a public meeting, a group of people meeting for the sake of their larger community, not a private association. There were words that they could have chosen to use to describe themselves that would have meant that and not already existing words for religious groups. So they pick this word that has a very public connotation and then display that public connotation throughout the early church by caring for people who are both part of their community and not by taking care of the sick and the poor, um, welcoming people into their community from different levels of social status and and really seeking the flourishing of, of more than just themselves, which I think is in real contrast to the way we tend to think of ourselves 
in America at least, in a lot of churches, as a lobbyist group or a special interest group where we have our certain you know, pet issues and we'll fight for them because they matter to us. And reorienting that and thinking, what if politics for Christians, not for anyone else, really, I don't have any reason to think that they would think this way, but for Christians, what if politics was not about protecting us or our interests, but about seeking the best kind of um, ability for the vulnerable to flourish. And that I think gives us more creative opportunities to say, if it's not about winning or losing, if it's not about us looking good or winning some kind of culture war, then maybe a small local election where a judge or a sheriff is elected that will serve the most vulnerable in our community, maybe that actually is a lot more valuable than either presidential candidate winning. And it gives us some more, I think, creative opportunities to see ourselves as existing for the sake of the world as opposed to for the sake of ourselves. Hey, Persuasion friends, this is Erin with a quick message about getting your copy of Caitlin Schess's new book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, from InterVarsity Press. InterVarsity Press is sponsoring this episode and is giving away two copies of Caitlin's book to Persuasion listeners. Register by September 24th by clicking the giveaway link from this episode's webpage at christandpopculture.com or persuasionpodcast.buzz. Now, you can also get 30% off with free shipping on a copy of the Liturgy of Politics when you purchase from ivypress.com using the code OFFER20F. That's O-F-F-E-R-2-0-F. And that discount is good through September 30th. So don't miss your chance to learn more from Caitlin about politics and spiritual formation. I love that you... um you know, frame this from Genesis 1, because I do think that gives us this overarching vision of what it means to be human, to create human communities in as image bearers. And it's a couple of things strike me. I was listening to you of how essential, how how very basic it is to common life and common flourishing to affirm the truth about the identity of our neighbors as image bearers. And I think we hear a lot of the language, especially on the right, about the sanctity of life. And and that's code for concerns about um, abortion or um, pro-life questions. And I I think those are, are valid applications of this question of our neighbor's identity. But um, even, as you've said, taking that more broadly to affirming um, the imago Dei of not just life in the womb, but of um, neighbors that don't look like us or um, anyone who is suffering under uh, the weight of the brokenness of this world. You know, that is a person made in the image of God who has been destined to flourish in his goodness, in the goodness of the world he has created. And what's so fascinating to me um, is that really is purpose of government when we see um, Paul speak about government in Romans 13. It's it's to do two things. It's not just to punish evil, which I think we tend to see it that way. Like there's a little punitive kind of approach, right? Like government stops the bad guy. That's what government does. And, and, And if that were the only thing government were to do, I think you do see this kind of authoritarianism where it's 
law and order. You know, we're just going to control the evil when in reality, it's this dual calling to uh, restrain sin, but to reward good and to actively promote those things that are good and beautiful and reflect the character and nature of God in this world. Um, so uh, you really cannot overstate how fundamental it is to um, our vision of life together about affirming the identity of our neighbor as image bearers, not en- not enemies, not people who don't deserve to flourish or who can be subjected so we can flourish, but there are or common humanity made in the image of God, and that we are seeking to live in the goodness um, that God has created, even in the midst of brokenness. And to do that, there are these structures and common, commonly held patterns and commonly held policies that would be able to say, we're going to um, re- restrain evil in this way, but we're also going to promote good and flourishing in this way. Yeah. And I think we underestimate, too, how fundamental to um, politics in a broken world the ability to pit people against each other is. And so even just understanding that on some level, most of the political messaging that we are receiving will use fear and division to kind of motivate us in a negative way. And so sometimes I think we just don't even that's so foundational to the way that we talk protecting ourselves against other people, protecting the things we value against the values of others. And it is so fundamental to political language that I think sometimes Christians go, well, we'll keep that, whether we recognize we're thinking this or not, we'll keep that kind of framework, but we'll just make sure we're really protecting ourselves against the best versions of the wrong things. (laughs) Like we'll be right about who the bad guys are. We'll be right about what the bad values are, but we'll keep that framework of division and fear instead of thinking, as you said, Hannah, of, well, could there be just a different framework? Could the framework include, yes, preventing evil, um, but also promoting good things? And our ability to think that way, I think, really requires that we aren't primarily discipled by political messaging and commentators and media. And a lot of us really are. And so to think that we could have that be the primary voice in our lives most days of the week, and then just sort of make it Christian is is really naive. And so I think, especially, you know, as someone who is around a lot of pastors and ministry leaders or people who are preparing to do that, there can be a tendency to want to avoid this conversation. And I really, if there's anything I ever want to tell them, it's that you have the greatest opportunity to give a new framework, a new way of thinking to your people. And if you don't do it, they have people that will give them the right framework to think politically. It's not that they'll be apolitical. It's that they will be discipled politically by these other forces. And more terrifyingly, that they will be discipled spiritually as well by those forces. And your absence in that conversation, um, at the very least at the level of creative, seeking the good kind of politics, your absence at that conversation isn't a void because it will be filled by something else. Caitlin, I am so appreciative that you have put in the time and the work to pull all of these things together into your book because we need to understand 
these things more deeply and and to know how we're being formed. So um, we're, we're just so thankful that you would come on and help us to process these things and get us started in this series. Um, thank you so much for being on this episode. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad you guys are, are doing it. It's important. Well, I'm sure all you listeners out there, you can tell that Caitlin has much more to share. And because we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to get a copy of her book in your hands, Hannah and I are going to give away two copies of Caitlin's book. And we'll get those details to you on how you can register. It'll be in the show notes and we'll post it online as well. But um, for this episode, for our intro of the series for God and Country, we're going to wind it down. But we have lots of good episodes lined up for you. So be sure to come on back and, and catch the whole series. All right. I think next episode, we're talking about taking America back for God. Yeah, just that simple <laughs> thing. Simple topic. I'm not sure who took it from him. <laughs> we're going to find so it we, out, though. <laughs> but we are, and we're going to wrestle it back and bring it back to him and present it, and he will love us when we do. <laughs> Amen. As always, you can join the conversation on Twitter, you can find us at Persuasion CAPC. And again, as Aaron mentioned, you'll find information there about how to sign up for the giveaway for Caitlin's book. Um, Christ and Pop Culture members can join the discussion in our community Facebook group. And of course, if you're not a member, become one. You can do it for just $5 a month and your contribution supports shows like this and all of the writing um, that you find through our site, um, including Caitlin's writing, um, the digital magazines, the podcast, and the articles on Christ and Pop Culture. You can also connect with us through persuasionpodcast.buzz um, on Instagram and on Facebook. And as always, we love to hear your thoughts um, and reactions to the conversation we're having. Persuasion is part of the CAPC Podcast Network, produced by Jonathan Clausen. Give all those shows a listen at christandpopculture.com slash network or by searching Christ and Pop Culture in the iTunes store or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. Name.